It's honestly kind of surprising and very embarrassing how many times my fear of birds has come up on this podcast, which is about books. I'm not proud of this fear, and I promise I come by it honestly. So if you're a bird lover, I hope we're still cool. The good news is that this week's book introduces us to a feathered friend that I actually kind of loved. The Burrowing Owl. In Carl Hyacin's Hoot, new kid Roy makes friends in his Florida community by advocating for these owls. Without the proper permits, their home is being turned into a pancake house, and there are a lot of institutions who are complicit. In Hyacin's first ever book for young readers, kids get to experience what many people might consider grown-up problems and seek out grown-up solutions for them. Hoot was published in 2002 and won a Newbery Honor in 2003. On this episode, we talk about what made Hoot particularly special in the early aughts, how it may have inspired a new generation of activists, and how the story might be different with the addition of social media. We also consider reviews that suggest the book is predictable, unpack the ways in which it seems to be questioning bureaucracy and institutions, and discuss the way it subverts familiar tropes about bullying. You'll even hear us talk about our kind of lame attempts at environmental advocacy when we were kids, which totally pale in comparison to Roy's efforts on the page. Today, we have not one, but two amazing guests on the show. Rachel Lippincott and Allison Derrick now have the distinction of being the only couple to ever appear on the podcast, which is pretty cool. Something else that is pretty cool is that in the week since we recorded this conversation, the book that Rachel and Allison wrote together, which is called She Gets the Girl, has become a New York Times bestseller. You've probably seen it around. If you stay tuned until the end of the episode, you'll hear them share more about the process of writing the book as a team. Let me tell you a little more about each of them individually. Rachel Lippincott, who you might recognize from episode 151 of SSR, is the co-author of All This Time and number one New York Times bestseller, Five Feet Apart, as well as the author of The Lucky List. She holds a BA in English writing from the University of Pittsburgh. She is originally from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Allison Derrick was born and raised in Greenville, Pennsylvania, a town where burn barrels take the place of recycling bins. Stay tuned for more about those burn barrels. After making her great escape to Pittsburgh, where she earned her bachelor's in English writing, Allison started her own food truck, but soon realized she much prefers telling stories to slinging cheesesteaks. Rachel and Allison live in Pittsburgh with their dog, Hank. Follow them individually on Instagram at Rachel Lippincott and at WhoIsAllisonAnyway, and their joint TikTok at Allison and Rachel. I am so grateful to Allison and Rachel for joining me on this episode, and it really did feel like I was hanging out with friends. Speaking of friends, let's be internet friends. You can find me at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community. Make even more internet pals by connecting with the free SSR Book Club at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. In May, we are reading Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and we would love to have you along for the ride. We are also kicking off a new book club next week in the SWR Shit We Read book club over in Patreon. May is all about Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson. I love running these discussions, which happen all throughout the month and culminate with a live virtual discussion. Patrons also get access to our Discord channel, reading recap videos, monthly newsletters, and so much more. 
Plus, as an independent podcaster, I really rely on contributions from fans like you to keep the show growing and improving. Learn more and get involved at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks to all of the patrons tuning in now. With all of the packing and unpacking I've been doing recently as we've prepared to move into our new house, great listening material has been absolutely essential. You know I love a good podcast, but audiobooks really come in handy for these moments too. As always, I would love to point all the audiobook lovers in the audience in the direction of Libro FM, which is my audiobook platform of choice. It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. And with Independent Bookstore Day coming up at the end of this week, there's never been a better time to make the switch. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Allison. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you so much. Hi, thanks for having us. I'm excited to have you both here. So Rachel is a returning guest and Allison is a newbie to SSR. And I don't often have like duos and it's always really fun to have two people on at the same time. You're a writing duo, you're partners in life and love (laughs) and work. And so I think this is going to be really fun. Thank you for coming on together. Definitely. I feel like that too. Yeah, this is really cool. <laughs> it's kind of interesting doing things with Allison now. <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming you're doing like a lot of press together for the new book. What's that like? It's been nice. Like everything feels pretty low pressure because I feel like we both have each other to like bounce off of. Yeah. Um. So that's been nice. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I definitely feel like that too. Yeah, it's interesting doing things with Allison. I feel like comfortable, I think, which is good in a way that I've haven't really doing like other promo (laughs) so it's always nice to just like have her there because I feel like it just creates like a nice dynamic for whatever we're doing (laughs) yeah definitely well I actually now that I think about it I think no I know you're making history on SSR you're the first couple to be on as guests so really big stuff (laughs) happening here today thank you so much um we also are covering for the first time ever a book by Carl Hyacin and I've had a lot of requests for Carl Hyacin this book in particular so I'm so glad you picked it. Today, the focus is on a little book called Hoot that was published in 2002. And I'd love to start by hearing a little bit more about why you chose this one. Rachel, do you want to go first? Yeah, definitely. Well, back in the day, I think this was at some point, one of my favorite books growing up, I think it beat out Wanderer by Sharon Creech. So the second I saw it on the list, I really wanted to reread it and kind of experience it through an adult lens and kind of see if uh, it held up to my childhood standards. (laughs) Do you remember what it was about it that you loved so much? Or can you sort of guess based on the childhood version of you? Oh, gosh, I think it was a couple things. I think on some level, like, 
rowdy childhood Rachel like wanted to be mullet fingers, which is like horrifying looking back on as an adult. And then I think just another level was I really loved just the environmental aspect of it. Like, you know, stopping this construction company from these little burrowing owls being destroyed. I really thought that was cool. And my mom is a lawyer. So oh, cool. I feel like I'm maybe like super related to that element of it. I was like, this is something I could probably do. <laughs> yeah, this is totally in my wheelhouse. How about you, Allison? Did you read this when you were growing up? No, I didn't. Actually, I don't even think I knew it was a book. Well, I'm sure we'll get into like, you know, childhood reading, but um, I wasn't a huge reader as a kid, but Rachel pointed it out. And then I remembered the movie that I've, I definitely watched as a kid. Um, so I was into it. I didn't know there was a movie until a few listeners pointed it out to me. And then I, of course, immediately like went and had to watch the trailer with Luke Wilson as the like bumbling police <laughs> officer. And now I obviously need to go see it. Is the movie good? I remember it being good. We're going to watch it tonight. We'll see if it holds up. Oh, yeah. I need a follow-up on this for yeah. sure. I mean, yeah, good, we'll like, know. what is good? Like, good <laughs> yeah. is a very relative term, but I definitely want to watch it. Um, and Brie Larson is in it. Like, who knew? It has a stacked cast. It really does. <laughs> Logan Lerman's in it. Like, <laughs> I know. I don't know how I missed this, but I definitely missed it. I did not read this book as a kid. It came out again in 2002 when I was 12. I feel like I was kind of transitioning out of reading YA at that time because I was, like, just too difficult to like read for my age. It's like, I need to read adult books, which like, you know, Nicholas Sparks or whatever. I have read a few of Carl Hyacin's adult books. It's been a few years, but I'm, I would say I'm more familiar with his like world building and his approach to writing than I am with his kids books. I don't think I ever read Hoot. I've heard quite a lot about it. Um, and when I worked in publishing, I worked for the house that published this book. And so there was always a lot of conversation about it because it just continues to have legs long after it was published. Worth mentioning, of course, that it is a Newbery Honor book, which is a huge deal. I guess before we get even further into our discussion of Hoot, I'm curious if either of you had any like environmental leanings when you were kids? Like were these causes that you were interested in when you were growing up? I definitely did. I remember like actively when like Al Gore's like An Inconvenient Truth came out. I was like in this friend group, like I think we were in like fifth or sixth grade or something. And we all like went downstairs to like the basement of my friend Dan Simon's house. And we like collectively watched it. And we were just like rallied to like <laughs> to do something for the cause. So yeah, I feel like from Hoot to that felt very linear for me. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Dan Simon and Al Gore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Allison? So like the place I grew up, people made good use of their burn barrels. Mm. I don't know if you know what a burn barrel is. Mm -hmm. I found out that like a lot of people do not. Yeah. So, you know, everything would go in the burn barrel, you know, beer cans and batteries. And But I do remember a phase I went through where like I was like disgusted by like all this, uh, like all these cans and bottles we were just like throwing out. And the local Walmart had like these recycling bins, like these big ones. And I remember like collecting them and taking them there for a couple months. And then eventually that streak ended. <laughs> Short lived. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what we see done really effectively in Hoot that I relate to is that Roy, our main character's way into environmentalism is through like a cute animal. And I, I do think that that's something that a lot of kids experience maybe less now, because I think that the messages about protecting the environment in a lot of places, unfortunately, not everywhere are a little bit more widespread. In the 90s, when I was growing up, when when people weren't talking about these issues quite as much, it was like the idea of endangered species that was really 
the draw, I think, for a young kid like me. Like, I loved animals. And so if you tell me that, like, a really adorable little creature is going to lose its home, like, that's going to speak to me and I'm going to want to learn more. And that's sort of what happens to Roy in this book. I think it's probably changing now just because pro-environment messages are maybe big enough that like kids don't need to hear about a little animal to understand <laughs> the gravity of the situation. But that was my experience with it. I remember that too. Yeah, I remember like, I think my mom paid like $25 or something for me to like get a certificate that said that I like adopted an animal an endangered species. And I could like read about the species and learn about like the animal that I'd adopted. And yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up. It really logged a memory for me. <laughs> yeah, I remember the World Wildlife foundation mm -hmm. or feder like, I don't know what that F stands for, but that was a big thing. My grandfather used to like support them and he would get the calendars. Do you remember mm -hmm. the calendars? And there would be like <laughs> these beautiful tigers on the front and he would give them to me because he like didn't really need like a cheap <laughs> calendar. But yeah, I think, I think Carl Hyacin was really smart to use an animal as a way to draw his readers into caring about the environment. I was reading about his journey to start writing for kids because Hoot was his first book for teens. He'd written a, a number of books for adults by this point. And he started writing for kids because he was kind of bummed out that his nieces and nephews couldn't read what he'd written so far. But something that he said he really struggled with was making sure that he wasn't writing down to kids. And I, and I would imagine as somebody who is transitioning from writing books for adult readers to writing books for kid readers, like that's something that you want to be really mindful of. Definitely. And because you write for teens, like I'd really love to get to get your take on this because I feel like this book is pretty respectful to young readers. Like it didn't feel to me as an adult um, <laughs> that he was talking down to teens. And uh, I can see how that would be a concern though. I think he, I do think he overcame his, his fears. Definitely. Yeah, I really felt like that with this book. We were talking earlier about like, <laughs> Just the number of like scenes where like a character was like strangled or like attempted to be strangled, like just even stuff like that. Like I definitely on no level felt like he was talking down to like a middle grade reader at all. And I feel like I really felt that as a child because it felt really relatable and the voice felt really honest to me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you think the same, Allison, I guess as an adult. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I do. Um, Speaking as an adult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, ha I don't have a lot of middle grade to compare it to, um, especially that I've read recently. But yeah, I definitely would think that as a kid, it wouldn't read as like him, t you know, writing down to, to them. And he used the word ass a few times, which I know I would have been scandalized by as a middle grade reader. Um, I would have been like clutching my tiny, my teeny tiny little pearls. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's kind of interesting while we're on the subject of like the way that Carl Hyacin, I almost just called him Carl. <laughs> the way Little that Carl, Carl <laughs> the way that Carl levels with his young readers is there's like a lot of just adult characters mm -hmm. in this book and they're not always interacting with kids. We get a lot of scenes of adults just like doing adult things in their adult workplaces, having adult concerns. And at first it kind of threw me off a little bit because I mean, I sort of try to compartmentalize my reading a little bit. Like I do my reading for the podcast, which is typically middle grade or YA, of course. And then I'm also reading books for myself. And that's typically more like in the adult genres. And I like was just, it was confusing for me somehow. Like I struggled to get into it a little bit. And I think it's just because I was so surprised that there was so much like grown up 
content. I guess it sort of surprises me that so many young kids have taken to this book like so much and championed it so much over the years, not because it's not great, because I really enjoyed reading it. But I can see how a lot of this would be like kind of hard for younger readers to muddle through because there's a lot about like bureaucracy and like red tape on the job and incompetent policemen. And like, there's just a lot of things that I think I maybe wouldn't have quite known how to make sense of when I was a kid. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think if I read it as a kid, I would, I could definitely see myself skimming um, those adult sections a little more to just get back to the, you know, the stuff with kids. But I did really like how he handled, like, I liked um, Roy's parents a lot. Mm -hmm. And they were just like, you know, I feel like a lot of times it ends up being like kids versus parents or something. But it didn't feel like that at all. And they were like really respectful and, you know, really good parents, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting, especially in reading it now where you have kind of the initial police officer's perspective where he's kind of talking about like how this is his chance for a promotion. You get like the entire POV of like the night he's supposed to be or the morning, I guess he's supposed to be having that stakeout and he ends up falling asleep and just kind of the aftermath of that. And then later on his sympathy over like the discovery of the owls and that too. And I thought it was, I I think (laughs) I can't remember like distinctly as a kid, I think maybe that I could see something like that, like getting the adult POV being really interesting to somebody because I think I was right at the balance between like middle grade and YA right when this came out or maybe at least when I read it maybe not when it came out I might have read it after you know it was a Newbery honor right (laughs) book but I could see that being like really appealing to a kid like getting this perspective of an adult and like what they're feeling in these moments and it might have been a little bit above my pay grade (laughs) or above my consciousness level I guess at that point but I I feel like on some level I would have found it really interesting just like getting that more mature perspective from the story. Yeah, being welcomed into that side of the world. So I sort of feel like that mirror, like the way that Carl Hyacin is writing for kids in this book is mirrored in the way the adult characters in the book are interacting with younger characters in the book. Like I think Allison, like you were saying, Roy's parents, they address Roy for the most part with like a lot of respect and they're a team and they're equals in their household. And I feel like that's kind of Carl's Carl's um, approach to writing as well. So I thought that those were all kind of cool elements. And I, I just feel like he seems he seems like a cool guy, like a cool author. And <laughs> I'd love to talk with him someday. So let's talk a little bit more about Roy, our main character. He has just moved to Florida. Carl Hyacin famously writes all about Florida. And so it's always fun to kind of see how that pops up in his books. He has moved from Montana. Roy is one of those kids who's moved around a lot. I think that his new school is like the sixth school that he's been to. It's funny because Rachel, the book you and I read The last time you were on the show Mm -hmm. was also about a new kid experience with Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. And of course, Roy is handling his new kid status much differently than (laughs) Lola did in Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen. What did you make of him? Like, what were your first impressions of Roy as you got to know him as an adult? I was really impressed with uh, (laughs) his ability to stand up for himself. Yeah, same. I definitely was not like that as a kid. And I wasn't expecting him to be like that from when we meet. But yeah, pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah, he seemed like incredibly, I don't even know, like practical and mature in ways that I don't think I 
was especially like, I think even with how he handled Dana, you know, he wrote that note, but then like all the time, it just seemed like he was keeping such a level head that was like, do you see that? Like when you try to throw a punch at me, like something happens. Like he seemed like he was like really rational and laying it out in like a very calm way that like, I don't think I would have been able to do (laughs) at that age. Or even I think just like his interactions with his parents or I'm really thinking about that classroom scene near the end where he kind of like lays out his argument to the class about like the owls and what it means and the lack of the permit and you know but oh our parents can write us notes and just all of that like I felt like he was just like (laughs) a quite a quite a solid and mature character for somebody you know that was like in middle school for sure and I want to talk a little bit more about his interactions with Dana who is the bully and, and you mentioned him briefly I think the interesting thing about Roy is that he comes off as like super wholesome like he's this nice guy a lot of the reviews that I read of this book which I will include links to in the show notes talk about how he's almost like painfully wholesome like how could this kid be so perfect And I think that's often a turnoff for young readers. Like nobody wants to read about a kid who is impossible to live up to. But the fact that Roy is simultaneously so wholesome and nice and good, but also like knows how to deal with a bully in a way that's not always like turning the other cheek. I don't know that I've read a character like that before. Like Mm. his relationship with Dana is kind of nuanced in that a lot of times he sort of like lets his behavior go but then when he like really needs to stand up for himself he does and I'm always sort of critical of the way bullying is portrayed in kids books because I think often like the victim of bullying is immediately turned into a hero for turning the bullying on the other person Mm -hmm. and that feels icky to me sometimes like I hate in a book when and maybe we did talk about this with confessions of a teenage drama queen but like especially in books written about young girls in the 90s and early aughts, I feel like there was this trope of, it's okay for me to be mean to the mean girl as long Mm -hmm. as I am fundamentally positioned as nice. And there's a real lack of nuance there. But something about Roy's navigation of this whole situation with Dana felt much richer to me. And I like trusted him more because it was like, he's not immediately turning into the bad guy. Although he sort of like becomes <laughs> awful to Dana toward the end. I guess I just didn't feel like the author was asking me to buy into Roy as this like perfect kid mm-hmm. because it 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 was only under certain circumstances that he was ready to like turn the tables on Dana. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think even from the first scene where you see Dana like literally strangling him, yeah. like and he him just wanting to get off the bus and chase after mullet fingers like you know there was that like reaction where like he did just like throw a punch over his shoulder but like i think i mean i'm not saying you know fighting back is the way to go but in in that instance like i feel like from that point on like all of his interactions with dana always seemed very respectful and I think just like thought out and I feel like I really liked Roy as a character in the sense that like every time he interacted with Dana he kind of made his point that was like I don't want to be doing this like I don't want to be fighting like I'm not here to fight you're the one that's swinging (laughs) you know I'm just here to you know talk things through I'm here to I don't want to get beat up when we go back to school tomorrow and I would like appreciate you to not do that so I feel like I really like the way that Roy was portrayed and you know he did near the end get a little more conniving yeah but yeah it definitely wasn't like I feel like a story where you were made to believe that he all of a sudden should be beating up on the bully it felt very much like earned I guess yes earned is the good word yeah it was happening Yeah, earned is definitely the word. And I think the other thing is like, it didn't feel at the beginning when he did fight back, 
it didn't feel like he had any like social capital to be gained, which I think is also an important distinction between the bullying setup in this book compared to the bullying setups in other books. Like he's not doing it to become cool. He's doing it because he's literally like being strangled by a bully yeah. on a bus. And that's just like a physical reflex. Like that's not, Absolutely. it's not safe. And so it, it wasn't ever about him coming off as cooler than Dana. Um, I just thought it was like an interesting setup and something different than we see, especially like books from this era where bullying was often pretty black and white. I also thought that the whole conversation about Roy, like reporting Dana and continuing to tell the principal or the vice principal about his behavior and his concerns about how Dana might retaliate, like that's really relevant to the way that victims have to make decisions about what kinds of things to report in adult life. Like the considerations he was making are unfortunately all too real for victims of all kinds of things. And I just like, I felt that all really deeply for him. He was scared. He he knew that it was right for him to let the powers that be know that Dana was causing a lot of problems and putting him in danger, but he also didn't want to set himself up for even more harm by saying that. Oh, just like that vice principal was the worst. Oh, the worst. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. I could not stand her. Yeah. I mean, the vice principal, I feel like is the kind of authority figure that unfortunately makes kids scared to speak up when something bad is happening to them. Um, Absolutely. And like just pitting Roy's words against Dana's, it's just not productive, obviously. But things really start to take a turn for Roy when he sees this kid running down the street without shoes on. And this is really like what motivates him to get off the bus because he like needs to see what's going on with this kid who we later find out calls himself Mullet Fingers. (laughs) Great title. Like, where did he come up with this? I wish I could come up with character names or even nicknames that were so fun. (laughs) But, But Roy is intrigued. And I think it's kind of fascinating to think about like why Roy as a new kid specifically would be so taken with the idea of this boy that he sees running on the bus. Like, what do you think it was about this mysterious shoeless boy that makes Roy so sure that he needs to like pursue him in his role as like the outsider in town? That's Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I feel like maybe like one element of it is like, you know, here he is on this bus and he's just trying to like mind his business and not have Dana come over and like, beat him up (laughs) kind of thing you know and he kind of like looks out of the window and sees this kid that's like just sprinting full-on sprinting down the street not heading off to school not stuck on this bus with him I guess you know not trying to like get through the school day and I feel like if I was a kid and I saw that I would definitely log as something interesting to me you know this person that's like so different from (laughs) from what he's doing right then in that moment yeah I feel like I'd really catch my eye yeah it's also like something that nobody else is paying attention to And I read Roy as a character who is just kind of trying to find a foothold in this community. Like he is sort of trying to figure out like what his space is going to be. He's having trouble making friends. Like the closest thing he has to a friend at the beginning is this guy named Garrett who like, I can't really (laughs) tell if they're friends or if Garrett just like doesn't have anything better to do than talk to Roy and like lend him a skateboard. Um, And I don't think Roy is like that into Garrett as a friend. Like Garrett's (laughs) not the person Roy would have selected, but it's somebody to sit with at lunch. And so 
seeing this boy running down the street is like something new for Roy to pursue. And like, I don't know, I think it when you're a kid, you're always looking for something that like makes you different from everybody else. And like, in this case, he's like, Oh, like me caring about this kid is the thing that's going to make me different. Yeah, no, I totally I totally feel that. Yeah. And also just like this kid specifically is like different than anything else on this bus or at this school that I'm going to. So that's Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I thought it was also so sweet when he like brings old shoes. Like he's he's looking for the kid, <laughs> and we find out that he's been carrying this shoebox with a pair of old shoes in them. And at first, Beatrice, who's this you know girl that we meet a little bit later on, is like, "Why do you have these shoes in here?" It's <laughs> like, well, the implication is that they are for this boy who doesn't have them, and that's so telling about Roy as a character. Okay, so while all this is going on, we also have the situation at the Pancake House lot. And <laughs> I loved the specificity of Mother Paula's All-American Pancake House as like the franchise that's moving to Coconut Grove. It reminded me of in the office when it's like Michael Scott's Pro-Am, Race for the Cure, 10K. <laughs> yeah. It just like goes on and on and on. Absolutely. And I, I just thought like Carl Hyacinth's nod to like it being an all-American institution mm-hmm. was really funny <laughs> and uh, definitely a nod to adults who might be reading this book. So this pancake house that's famous for, I believe, black licorice oatmeal pancakes. Is it their sounds specialty. horrible it sounds, to me yeah, personally. <laughs> horrible. I do not like licorice. <laughs> I hate black licorice. Oh, who wants that in their pancakes? That just sounds <laughs> awful. And so they're getting ready to build the restaurant. And this is where like the adult part of the story comes in because we have a police officer named Officer Delenko, Luke Wilson in the movie, who is sort of like responsible for making sure that everything goes to plan on this site and he's doing a really terrible job at it. And then there's Curly, who is the foreman. I thought Officer Delinko was really an interesting character. And I read him so differently now than I think I would have read him as an adult because I was reading it through the lens of somebody who has like seen so much in the news about like law enforcement in our country. And I just think that in 2002, Carl Hyacinth is making such a statement about the state of maybe one or two specific police forces. I don't really know. I don't know what his relationship with police was at that time. But like, it felt very clear to me that he's trying to tell us like, sometimes these institutions are corrupt, and you just have to be aware of that. Like, I think kids are so conditioned sometimes to like, always trust these institutions. And I I think it's worth noting, like often these institutions can be trusted, but I like that Carl Hyacin is encouraging kids to like look at some of these things with a more critical lens and like pulling back the curtain a little bit and being like, a lot of these people are here to protect you, but you also need to understand that like nobody's perfect. And just because you like wear a certain uniform doesn't mean that you are like flawless at your job all the time. And Officer Delenko like is certainly not flawless at his job in the end. He is on the side of right because like we were saying before, like he does realize the importance of saving the owls and he he kind of comes to that as the priority over keeping his job. But in the process, he messes up a lot of stuff. And so I actually think that Carl Hyacin struck a really good balance. Like he's not trying to topple these systems entirely for kids because he's like, in the end, these these folks will hopefully like make the right decisions. But in the meantime, like just remember that nobody knows exactly what they're doing. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that if I was reading this as a kid, I might have like kind of skimmed through those adult sections. But I also think it's like really cool um, the way he does it. And, you know, probably a really good introduction for a lot of kids into like adult problems and like the adult world. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah, it's so true because Officer Delinko is dealing with like this tension between wanting to keep his job. I mean, it's a promotion. A promotion. <laughs> yeah, not only does he just want to keep his job, he wants to be promoted. It seems like he has always dreamed of being a police officer and that's really important to him. And I think when you're a kid, like I'm trying to remember when I was growing up and like what my understanding of my parents' jobs were or even other adults in my life. Like, I think I obviously knew that they went to work and my my parents, my mom especially has always been like pretty open about her job. So I always like, we always celebrated when something good happened at work. And like, I always knew when things were stressful, but so often when you're young, you don't actually, and rightfully so, like you don't actually know like the ins and outs of someone's so day and like how, what kind of bearing that has on your future in that job. And we really like are along for the ride with Officer Delinko in all of his mistakes and victories. And I don't, I wasn't sure like how old he was supposed to be. Like, I think if if I read this as a kid, I probably would have thought he was like old, but I read this now and I'm like, I feel like he's maybe like in his twenties. Yeah, I, I think know. you're right. Yeah. I got like late twenties maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like he's just learning and Mm -hmm. I do love like a flawed adult character in a kid's book. I think it's so important. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And you're right, like I always think of like the joking thing where I feel like there's a certain age where kids realize like teachers like have lives outside of school, just like small moments (laughs) like that where like you start gaining comprehension of like the fact that adults like, you know, have families and they have homes and they like you know, my mom would like go into Philadelphia every day and like on a train and like come home. And I just knew she like took the train every day and then she would be home to pick me up from like after school care. But I did, as an adult or like as you start maturing, you realize like she's probably tired. She gets up at like 530 in the morning and she doesn't pick me up till like 530 at night, you know, just like small elements like that. But yeah, I think it's really interesting from like the very first time we meet him. Here he is hoping for a promotion. He really wants to in a couple years, be a detective is his real dream. And, you know, you get that like very human element of like, this person's tired. It is early. He's like trying to drink coffee. He's trying to stay awake. And next thing you know, he like gets woken up and it's 930 and his car has been spray painted, you know, just very human elements to like these adult characters, which I I thought was a really cool thing to have in this book. Yeah, he also like might just not be that great at his job, which absolutely I think is an important lesson for kids to learn too. Like I think when I was growing up, it's like, oh, anybody who has a job is probably good at that job because you have that job. (laughs) (laughs) And I think like sometimes there are days when I'm better at my job than others. (laughs) And like there are days that maybe you could say that I'm bad at my job. I don't know. And that's part of being an adult and seeing him work through that. I relate, like I empathize with him. Like sometimes you just have a bad day and sometimes maybe you're on the wrong path. But I think the larger institution that he's part of certainly isn't encouraging him to do much better. And and that's kind of the part that as an adult, I feel like I appreciated more. Like yeah. it just feels very corrupt. Like they are really doing everything they can do to speed up the process of getting this restaurant built. Absolutely. It seems like there's a lot of like kickbacks happening. And he's also trying to like secure recommendation letters from Roy's dad so that he can be promoted. Like I, I don't think that Officer Delinko 
is a bad guy. I think he's a really sweet, bumbling guy, but he is part of a system that definitely doesn't encourage the most stand-up behavior at all times. So. Yeah, his investigation process. Like, I feel like there were a couple times where he was like patting himself on the back. Where he like <laughs> should not have been, and you as the reader were like just reading it, and you knew he was like off the trail or like thought that he was doing something when he was not, or even just like when you could tell that he knew that Dana was not the perpetrator like there were many times like near the end where you were like you you can kind of tell like these kids answers are not lining up with what you think here and he was just like staying on that course because he wanted the promotion he wanted this case to be solved and it just wasn't the case (laughs) it also felt like his boss wasn't giving him a choice you know to have those opinions yeah that's true the boss was like okay so this is solved now right like we're good (laughs) yeah Let's move on and eat some pancakes. Black licorice oatmeal pancakes. pancakes. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that all of the, the sort of institutional stuff was kind of fascinating. And I, I had some trouble getting into the book. I'm not going to lie. I really struggled with the first half. And I don't know why, because I actually thought that a lot of the content was interesting. Maybe I'm just experiencing like a little bit of middle grade fatigue. But I think that like, maybe if I'd read it, from an adult lens, like being like, oh, this is an adult book that I'm reading. I wouldn't have felt that way. But I think I was just like trying to understand at the beginning how it was intended for kids, if that makes sense. Like so much of that first half is getting you into the point of view of Officer Delinko and like trying to understand his dynamics with Curly, the foreman and like all this construction stuff. And like, is Mullet Fingers hanging out at the construction site? Like, where is he going? There were just all of these things. And I, I was having trouble like putting myself in the mindset of a kid reading it. And I feel like it just like slowed me down or something. Yeah, I kind of think I did too. It was interesting. Like going into this, I was like, I'm going to have such a good time reading one of my old favorites as a kid. And like, I remember like, (laughs) just looking over at Allison after chapter three and being like, I am struggling. I am fighting for my life here. I know you were really talking it up. And then all of a sudden it was just, you are not into it. I don't know what happened. Yeah. I was just like, I was really trying. I remember, I think as a kid, like the thing that really caught me was just like, and maybe like uh, the same as Roy on some level was just, you know, mullet fingers running outside the window and being like, who is this child? Like, I'm so intrigued by this. And just like wanting to know more about that character and wanting to see that character again as soon as possible. And so maybe that's like what kind of got me through the first half but yeah I feel like it was it took me a couple I'd I'd say about as long as it took you to like really feel like I hit my stride with this one as an adult that makes me feel better it wasn't just me I I feel like mullet (laughs) fingers is like not that present in the book or like and I can I totally see what you're saying Rachel where like when I was reading it as a kid I probably would have been reading with the intention of like tracking him a little bit and I would have been looking for him Whereas now I'm reading it, like focusing mostly on like the adult affairs, because that's Mm -hmm. what we're getting on the page. And I was like, okay, like workplace drama, an incompetent police officer, (laughs) like a sad kid, bullying. And I sort of like forgot that Mullet Fingers was part of it because we actually don't see him that much. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. You really don't. You only get like glimpses of him. And I feel like I don't know, like, I I guess maybe that like might be interesting as a kid, like, I feel like really by the end, you like similar to Roy, you don't feel like you have a full grasp on this character. You know, he is kind of just like, 
<laughs> I don't even know. I was going to say otherworldly, but that's not the right word. He's just like, uh, just a character that you don't, or a person that you don't see a lot. You know, his name is Mullet Fingers. He has the ability to catch these like little tiny glowing mullet fish with his bare hands. You know, he's living on his own. He has like a moldy sleeping bag he sleeps in. Like, it's just like fantastical almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like as a kid, like a character like that would have been like, so cool to me. I also loved like My Side of the Mountain and just books like that where it's like just kids roughing it on their own, <laughs> however unrealistic it might be. But you're right. You, you really don't get a lot of scenes with mullet fingers in them in it. So I feel like a huge element of the story is just like wanting to know more but never getting enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's like a shooting star just passing <laughs> through the sky of Roy's life. Um, Let's talk about Beatrice Lep, Beatrice Leap. I don't know, was it Leap or Lep? I kind of like the way it sounds as Beatrice Lep, but I think it's spelled like Leap. So I think I said Leap in my head. Okay. I don't know why I thought in my head it sounded better as, as Lep, but uh, Beatrice Leap is another of Roy's unlikely friends when he realizes that like Garrett is just not going to be it for him. And he discovers that Beatrice is Moltfinger's stepsister. And she's a little scary. She's on the soccer team. She can beat people up. She's intimidating. What did you think of her? I loved her. Yes, she's great. Yeah, I think even as a kid, I was like, she is the coolest. I just like love that story where she like beat up that football player and like broke his collarbone. And he was out for the season. I think even as a kid and even as an adult, I was like, you go like way to go. Yeah, I feel like I was so shocked when I was reading it the first time when I was a kid and I was like, they're related? Um, <laughs> that like blew my mind and I was like so into the story after that. But I feel like now like it's so, like reading it as an adult, I also knew it was like so obvious to me that there was like a connection. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the reviews that I came across talk about how predictable the book is as a whole. And I don't know that I necessarily felt that way because I hadn't read it before. So I, I didn't quite know what to expect. I mean, yes, I sort of anticipated that Beatrice would be connected to Molt Fingers. And like, you get the sense that Molt Fingers is the one causing all of these problems at the construction site and that he loves the birds. Like I, I picked up on all of those things, but it didn't read as predictable to me. Like I, I, I feel like we got information at the proper pace in that at no time was I like, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen next. Like, just tell me. Like, everything sort of happened for me when it felt earned. I think that was a word that you used earlier. None of it felt like it was lagging. Like, yeah, I saw it coming. But I also don't know that it was meant to be super twisty. Wikipedia mm -hmm. describes this <laughs> as a suspense book, oh. which I thought was wrong. And I would like to make a correction to the Wikipedia entry because I did not find it to be suspenseful. And it, if that was the intention then yes, it was extremely predictable. But yeah, I don't think I would have used the word predictable to describe it. Yeah, I don't think I would either. I feel like even down to the last moment, like you're hoping that this like everything is resolved nicely. But even like as an adult, I was like reading, I was like, are they going to pull this off? Like, are the owls going to show up? And then like, you know, mullet fingers is there buried, like his head popping up out of the ground. Like, just like stuff like that. Like, I feel like I could not have predicted the conclusion. And then yeah, I, I just like other elements of the story, like have, down to like having a former Miss America winner being like Miss Paula. And like even in the epilogue, just like the amount of detail that went into like the repairing of her image and just small stuff like that. Like I feel like there was just so much detail in even the minor characters backstory that I feel like it'd be hard to like label it as predictable because it was just so infused with like 
I feel like the book was just so infused with the world and the characters and it felt so unpredictable to me. Mm-hmm. I think some of the like patterns were predictable. I think maybe I got a little tired of reading at some point, like maybe toward like the middle end because just the whole like, you know, mullet fingers would do something and then like bumbling curly would like <laughs> try to, you know, he'd get dogs or like the rat traps and it, it did go back and forth like that a few times. Yeah, maybe that's why it was lagging for me for chunks because I was like, okay, how much time are we going to spend with Officer Delinko in his car at the site and then with Curly trying to figure out who's committing the vandalism? Like, I totally agree with you there. That part was predictable. I did love the supporting characters and I think that's where Carl Hyacinth's mm-hmm. like long track record as a successful adult novelist really comes through because you see how much he enjoys writing these kind of zany people. Like I loved that actress who who Same. was like <laughs> showing up and putting on a gray wig and pretending to be <laughs> Mother Paula and making pancakes. Like just so absurd. And that's what I remember about the few Carl Hyacin adult books that I've read is that he really just loves to play with these absurd, absurd stereotypes of people, especially in Florida. Like this is what he deals in. Like <laughs> he wants to sort of put Florida on display. And I think he's like born and raised there. So he's not trying to make fun of anybody, but he's like, no, this is like the kind of person that I see. And it's funny. Like we have to laugh about it. <laughs> But let's talk about the owls. So listeners know that I am not a bird girl. Like I'm kind of scared <laughs> of birds, really don't like them. But I did look up photos of these burrowing owls that we hear about in Hoot, and they're really cute. <laughs> they're super adorable. I would help protect even them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I would. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get involved with like a turkey rescue or <laughs> those are very scary to me. Uh, I've had some bad run-ins with turkeys. But a burrowing owl, sure, I could get behind behind that. Molt Fingers was right all along in that this construction site is illegal because they're building on land that is occupied by these protected burrowing owls. They live in these little holes because they burrow. And um, Molt Fingers is just trying to like bring attention to that cause. And ultimately, Beatrice and Roy get involved in helping him spread that message. And the scene where... Roy brings this problem to his classmates as part of current events time. First of all, it brought back all of these memories of, of current event times at school. <laughs> and I don't know if that's a thing that that is done anymore because when I did it in elementary school, it was so tied to like cutting something out of a newspaper, which is just not the way that people consume news anymore. I remember like sitting down with my dad on the weekends that it was like my day for current events. And like, we would go through the newspaper and he taught me how to read the newspaper. And Roy does not want to bring in any of the pieces of news that are like front page. He brings to his class his concerns about what's happening at the site of Mother Paula's pancake house, all American pancake house. And he rallies their support. They <laughs> all show up at the groundbreaking. And their parents. Some and of their, their parents. parents. <laughs> like, real cute. They all get notes. Some of the teachers show up. I think that this book is really like so perfect for Generation Z. Gen Z. Generation Z sounds like not the cool thing to say to yeah. Gen Zers. <laughs> Here I am. A millennial. <laughs> it's me, a millennial, being cool. No, I feel like this book is is perfect for Gen Z. And there are so many people in Gen Z who are like taking up these causes at such a young age and like understanding activism in a way that I just didn't when I was growing up. And 
I love to think about what a character like Roy or Mullet Fingers or Beatrice would do if they had the reach of social media. Like, can you imagine if they were able to take what they knew about what was happening here and have even wider reach with it? Like kids who grew up and read this book and then came of age with those tools, like it's no wonder that all of these movements are happening. And I don't think we can credit Hoot with all of them, but I do think (laughs) it's telling that like I didn't have access to this book at the time that I think it would have been right for me. And kids in Gen Z did. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. Cause I'm thinking about like even just like the was it alligators in the mm-hmm. in the porta potty? Like just something like that, like now would make its rounds on social media. Like just stories like that. And, you know, you all of a sudden have like somebody like Roy who would probably have like a Twitter account or Instagram or TikTok or something saying something along the lines of like and there are burrowing owls on here. Like people would really rally behind something like that. And the book would be a lot shorter. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think I think that's a really good point that you make. Like, it's interesting, I think now seeing like how this book would possibly impact somebody that's in Gen Z and the future generations and the people that are picking it up now. And I think that's interesting, because I was really reflecting on like, we're having like our first kid in uh, August. And so I'm really reflecting on like what books that I loved from my childhood that like I would want them to read. And just yesterday I said to Allison, I was like, you know, I'm, I think I'd let them read it, but I don't think I would be like as impassioned as like, I mean, I obviously wouldn't let them read it, but I don't think I would be as impassioned as I thought I would be, you know, like taking them to the library, like you got to read this one. This one was my favorite. But after like hearing that point, I, I think I, I think it's, it's moving back up into my top 10 forced recommendations that I'll be making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if your kid hates it, don't tell them that I, that I <laughs> made this speech. <laughs> no, I, I think that it is, it's just interesting to think about because I, I was joking about this before we started recording, but I feel like my first exposure to this kind of activist passion, and this is going to sound crazy, was the song Big Yellow Taxi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when the county, was it Counting Crows or somebody, somebody covered it for a movie, um, for the movie, Two Weeks Notice, great movie. And I loved that song. And once I realized what it was about, it made me very curious about like how these movements happen in real life. I won't sing it. I know I threatened you before I hit record. Um, You sure? Yeah, I'm not really feeling like my voice is up for it today, but, um, (laughs) I I just think if I'd had access to more stories like this, maybe I would have had even more curiosity and I would have had more energy around taking steps that would further real meaningful change beyond just like hanging up my grandfather's World Wildlife Federation calendar in my room and being like, that's a really cute tiger. Although they, they were really cute tigers. So on the whole... What did you think about this book? I know we've now talked about the fact that it's sort of like a lukewarm recommendation for your future child. <laughs> Rachel, you've expressed that maybe it's not as great as you remember it being, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you reflect on the experience of coming back to it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I feel like now that I've talked about it a little bit, I'm like, you know what? This is still a pretty solid book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like. I definitely went in with really high expectations because as I mentioned, this was one of my favorites when I was a kid. I really genuinely love this story. And, you know, as as we're talking about it, I totally remember just stuff like, and I'm sure it was influenced by this story. Like I would, when my family had a yard sale, I would like set up like a lemonade stand and like raise money for like, you know, the like local animal shelter, just stuff like that. And I feel like it was absolutely books like this that inspired me to do stuff like that and to have like a book where, 
you know, you do get an introduction to, you know, standing up for stuff that you care about and activism and um, whether it's burrowing owls or, you know, the animal shelter down the street, like this is absolutely like a, a great book to do that. You have interesting characters like mullet fingers and, uh, you know, you have crazy hijinks like alligators in the porta potty and the snakes that have uh, glitter <laughs> glued to their tails, just stuff like that. And yeah, I feel like it's a solid book. I feel like if I push away the element of me reading it as an adult and I maybe try to reclaim the energy that I had when I was a kid, the book holds up on some level. <laughs> yeah. Allison, I know you didn't read it when you were a kid, but how does it sort of compare to your expectations for it? Would you want your future child to read it? What did you think overall? Yeah. So I kind of went in probably the opposite way of Rachel with pretty low expectations because... No, I spoke of it highly. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah. You're also like, who is this girl that wants us to read a book written for 12-year-olds? <laughs> like a weird podcast, but okay. <laughs> um... Yeah, I really didn't know what to expect because, like, I really have not read, like, any middle grade books. But I think I was pleasantly surprised pretty quickly. I liked how voicey it was. I was surprised by, you know, the adult characters and um, how big of a part they play. It's nice. And, yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I definitely liked it a lot more than I thought I would. Would I recommend it or would I want my kid to read it? I probably wouldn't recommend it to them. But if they wanted to read it, like, sure. I just think, like, there's probably maybe better books now to read that aren't quite as, like, outdated. Yeah. I feel like at the time, this book was probably pretty revolutionary in its activist leanings. And the fact that it was written by, like, such a mainstream popular adult author probably helped it get attention. But I'm sure, I know, I, I know that there are other books out there now, many other books that talk about activism in a more contemporary way. Other than Hoot, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be middle grade or YA. It doesn't have to be. Allison, do you want to go first? Yeah, I have not read much YA recently, but I did just read Verity by Colleen Hoover. It's on my list. I feel like I'm the okay. only person who hasn't read it. Is yeah, it, is it worth the hype? I think so. I okay. mean, people are a little bit like overdramatic, um, saying like it was like keeping them up at night. That's what people <laughs> told me. But um, it was really good. I liked it. It was it was super, uh, super tasty. Okay, yeah, that's one of my books that I'm like, I have to finally read it in 2022, because I feel so left out. Yeah, you definitely should. Okay, I will. How about you, Rachel? Um, I actually, I've been on a bit of a graphic novel kick recently. <laughs> um, I think I've been checking out, I, I just read Heartstopper because everybody's been reading Heartstopper and then there's the Netflix adaptation that's coming out and I absolutely adored it. It was like probably one of the, my favorite books that I've read in the last three years. Yeah, just like such, the drawings are so cute <laughs> and then like such good vibes and like there were just like a couple of panels that literally made me like squeal like it was so adorable um and just like such real good feelings for like you know when you're in high school and you're experiencing like your first love and you know you're like thinking about holding their hand or like thinking about kissing them for the first time just like small stuff like that so yeah total recommend it's really good and it's just like a really good feel good read and I think if you're in like a reading slump or if you're having trouble like sitting down and really like committing to a book it's great you know you can like sit down finish it like an hour and a half and have good feelings after it and want to pick up the next one. So 
definitely recommend. That sounds great. I know next to nothing about graphic novels. So it's always helpful for me when I hear people like talk about them and the impact that they've had. So I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. I will also include a link to your new book, She Gets the Girl, which as this episode drops, will have been out in the world for a few weeks. And you wrote it together, which I do need to hear a little bit more about because (laughs) It's hard for me to imagine writing with anybody because I'm such a control freak about my writing. How did this come about and what was the process like? Well, I think we were both sort of circling around a similar book idea, right, Rachel? Yeah, very true. (laughs) Yeah. And we had considered writing together before. I think we even tried maybe like three years ago and it just didn't, I don't know, we just couldn't find our rhythm. Mm -hmm. And we're like, this isn't going to work. And also we work very differently, I think. Yeah, I think we work differently. Yeah, we just have different processes. But yeah, um, so we started putting together an outline and it just went a lot smoother than last time we tried. And so basically the very first outline we wrote was an outline of how we met. It was very close to our story. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really fun. Just, you know, digging up all the old memories. Oh, I love that. Yeah, sharing... uh, you know, things that maybe we'd never like spoken about openly. And it was a lot of, a lot of laughs were had for sure. <laughs> and what about once you got into the routine? Like, were you passing pages back and forth? Like, how did that play out? Again, I feel like we were like really, we didn't want to force it because we knew like the first time we attempted it with a different story that just wasn't right. Uh, it just like didn't work. So I think we were really careful. Like we, you know, had a critique partner read it or actually our former teacher Siobhan Vivian who we met in her class at at Pitt and it was nice to hear actually that like like Allison mentioned like we did write the outline that was pretty close to our story it was nice to hear that like our voices worked well together like our two distinct voices worked well together and like the issue was just like the story wasn't quite interesting enough yet like that was awesome honestly a welcome relief to hear because you can make a story more interesting and more stakesy and a little bit more tasty but like if your writing styles aren't meshing then like it's just not gonna happen like the book is not gonna get written so yeah it was really cool like I think just diving in and working together and figuring out like the process, as Allison said, we did write an outline. So we just kind of divided it into like which characters would take over which scenes and which felt more honest to the characters and kind of dived in and it it ended up working, <laughs> which was a bit of a miracle. <laughs> Once we really got into like revisions and stuff, it did get a little, um, Rachel's very like, she can work a lot faster than me and she likes to talk about things and like figure them out like together, like right, like hunched over the computer. And I just like need time to process and I I like written notes and I don't like to be pressured. So that was probably our only like our only hurdle. We had to we had to jump really. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's so true. Like I I feel like it's there was definitely a bit of a learning experience, just like me, like Allison, like we have to fix this line. And then Allison being like, I cannot fix this line with you telling me to fix this line while we are sitting here. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I feel like as a whole, like, you know, you have a couple of those moments and then you just like don't talk to each other for an hour and you're like, let's not do that again. And then of course you do it again. But yeah, it, it's like a little bit better the next time. And, you know, eventually by like the final draft, you're, you understand that. But yeah, I feel like as a whole, it was really cool. I think especially like, one element that was nice was like in our day-to-day I feel like Allison's typically like 
more of the rock. I'm a, a bit more chaotic, a bit more all over the place. And I feel like, you know, if something's happening, like, I'll just be like, Alison, do you think blah, blah, blah? And she's like, what are you even talking about? And she'll like, you know, settle my nerves and stuff like that. But, you know, this was like my fourth book. So it was really nice kind of like having that entire, our, our personal life experience kind of flip in this, in the work world, you know, where Allison would get her first round of revisions ever. And it's like a huge Mount Everest mountain of stuff that you got to do. And I just like would go into the bedroom and she'd just be like staring at the ceiling, like just a complete mental breakdown, like screaming down her face. And I'm just like, listen, you know, like we got 28 days like there's plenty of time like it's gonna be okay like we're, we're just gonna start and before you know it like we're gonna be on the final four chapters like you just gotta pluck away at it and we'll get there um and it totally it was really cool just like having for once being like don't worry about it like we got this um kind of being the rock in that situation <laughs> that's so cool I'm so excited to read it can you give us any other info about what it's about yeah, so the story is about these two characters, Alex and Molly, who are complete and total polar opposites. And they they meet at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where we went to school. We wanted to kind of do a shout out to, to the place that we live and uh, the place we fell in love at. So they meet at the University of Pittsburgh. They cannot be any more different. And uh, they have a scene. And from the very start, they're initially completely at odds with one another. But they find out that if they team up and work together, then they can help one another get the respective girls of their dreams. Alex, in her case... Uh, it's her ex who is, you know, part of a band and touring and Molly in her case, it's this girl that she's adored for many a year, but not had the courage to speak to. So they team up and decide to work together, but, you know, end up falling in love with each other instead. <laughs> As often happens. I love that. I'm so excited for you. Congratulations on this joint project. It's so exciting. And listeners, I'll make sure that there are links to get a copy of She Gets the Girl in the show notes for this episode. And I will also point you in that direction over on social media this week. It has been so fun talking to both of you. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks a lot for having us. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>